0: You're listening to Tiger Country because sometimes you want a better view than the one you can get from being behind the knife. Sometimes you want your conversations to be more audible than the bleeding. Join Milos Bahavits, Joan Bose, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk to our guests about trauma surgery, critical care, powerboating, cats, mandolin, croissants, cats, TV shows, cats,
1: and state. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody, to the latest episode of Tiger Country. A uh, bit of a change of pace from the last two episodes where we were very heavy on our clinical education. This week, as always, I'm joined by my co hosts, Dr. Joe DeBose and Dr. Rishi Kundi, and we are very honored to be uh, joined by Dr. David Spain, uh, who's going to be talking to us a little bit about. Professionalism in trauma. So, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Spain. This is—it's uh, definitely something a little different. We 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 don't usually do topics like this, but nevertheless, incredibly important. And the reason we thought you'd be so great uh, to share some insight on this topic is really twofold. Mm-hmm. One, your you're universally admired as the consummate professional yourself, and, and of course, secondly, you and a group of our surgical leaders published an article recently in the Annals of Surgery that looked at the impact of professionalism on outcomes in the setting of trauma. So I was hoping you could share with us your, your cliff notes, some of the big takeaways that you have, and how you came up with the idea and, and what the study showed.
2: Yeah, well, first, thanks for the compliment and the invitation. Um, so you know a little bit of this work's been going on a while. Um, there, there's a group out of Vanderbilt, uh, largely run by some pediatricians that study professionalism. And um, we got involved with them a little while ago at some projects looking at surgeons who'd had complaints about them as far as professional behavior. And again, these are just unsolicited patient complaints not even necessarily verified or right, but, but, you know, they are collected and categorized. And so we, we looked at, you know, do surgeons that have more complaints from patients and families have higher risks of complications. And, and so that was the first study we, we actually did, did together. Um, it's like 10 or 12 hospitals and and. It, we we made sure we separated, you know, sometimes patients who have complications are more likely to complain, right? So we we actually separated the group. So it wasn't, you know, it was one group, you know, wasn't wasn't just the patients who complained or had complications or the ones complaining. And, you know, we looked at that, we found about a 14% risk adjusted increase in complications for patients who were at the higher end of complaints, unsolicited complaints from patients and families. Well, and the the second study was looking at at coworker complaints. Same thing, right? Again, that shouldn't affect your complication rate. Same thing: 15 percent higher risk-adjusted complication rates in um, surgery patients whose uh, attending surgeon had had more complaints about, uh, you know, around them from colleagues and coworkers. You know, and I think that the, the the thought there was it's a, maybe it's a communication issue, right? It, you know, if the nurses are afraid of you and, and your patients, you know, not looking great, and they're afraid to call you. You know, maybe that's you know part of the part of the issue, and you know, maybe it's a communication thing. And so, you know, but again, this idea of professionalism, like you know, patient complaints, families, colleague, coworker complaints, um, you know, it it seemed to show that it affected patient care. The problem, you know, the issue we came up with trauma care is like, you know, it's a team sport, right? Like, it's one thing if you if you admit a patient for elective colectomy or Whipple or whatever, right? That or hernia repair, like that's your patient, right? You saw them, you worked them up, you operate on them, you're responsible for the post op care. You know, trauma patient, patient comes in on Monday, and you know, and Emilis is on call, and you admit the patient, and you take care of them for two or three days, and then Joe's on the weekend. Right. And then on Tuesday, the following week, I decided to take the patient to the OR and and then things go poorly. Well, who's responsible? Right. And, and if the patient complains about their outcome or professional, like and, and the short answer is we're all we're all responsible. Right. We're the team. So that that was where this the latest study sort of came out. So we were rather than looking at any individual surgeons profile, we thought we'd look at teams. Right. So what is this team of general surgeons at? Stanford look like? What does a team of orthopedic surgeons, what does a team of general surgeons and everybody look like? You know, and could we correlate that? And again, you know, the same, it turns out for, you know, if I got a we had 10 different institutions, you know, multiple groups, general surgery, orthopedics, you know, anesthesia, EMET. You know, again, if you had some teams that were sort of outliers in terms of the number of complaints and everything, complication rate went up. It was the same, it was like 14, 15% risk-adjusted complication rate. So yeah, I do think there's there's something in there. It, you know, it is hard to, again, with, with the trauma patients, they're so complicated. There's so many reasons why, you know, things could go awry and it could have complications. Um, but I do think there, there's probably something in there in, in terms of effective communication, teamwork, collaboration, collegiality, um, we're still trying to look at like, you know, is there crucial things, right? Is it, is it like general surgery and orthopedics if one of those two are off or you know have problems in their teamwork? Is that is that, you know, that's probably more likely than if it's plastic surgery or something, right? Um, so we're we're still trying to to do some follow-up studies, but I, I do really do think that that there's some link between professionalism, communication, and teamwork that that I think sometimes gets off base.
3: Yeah, well, it was a fascinating study. I really enjoyed reading it and the whole thought process. And I look forward to what you guys find in terms of things that contribute. And it reminds me too, we're never we're only strong as our weakest link, right? So it really only takes one person in the group to be problematic, uh, and it really can reflect in the whole group.
2: Well, that that's what we're trying. That's what we're trying to do next, right? Is so. You know, this group out of Vanderbilt has a whole way of of assessing these complaints and sort of categorizing them and developing a risk score, right? And and, you know, and there's this whole weakest link theory in sports, right? Like, there's some sports where there's where the weak link is is the problem, right? So in soccer, like if you have a weak link, a weak link as a player, you have problems. Whereas in basketball, if you have one superstar, you can be all right, right? And so we're looking at that idea, right? Again, if you have seven trauma surgeons, one of them, one of them is an outlier. You know, are, is that going to be a problem? Or if you have seven trauma surgeons, in in they're not outliers, but five of them are a little bit above average. Then is that is that crucial? Or you know, so that's yeah. what we're trying to try to do next is well, what is the pattern? Is it is it the one week link, or is it there is it the whole team effort?
3: Yeah, it's cool stuff. You know, I, I I read I I love trying to read something non mediciny that will make me better. And one of the people that I've read is this guy called David Maestron, He's an academic, and he's really focused on this realm of business professionalism and its impact on results and outcomes. That's why after reading that this kind of, this article that you worked on in particular struck a chord with me. And it, one of the things I think that's fascinating to talk to to read about and listen to people talk about professionalism, how hard it is to define and Really, the, the thing that my favorite quote that I've heard on it is from him. And it said, he said, basically, professionalism is, professionalism is not a label that you give yourself. It's something you hope people say about you or that a label they apply to you. That's a great quote. That's not particularly concrete. And it's still this definition is a little elusive. If I had to pin you down, Dr. Spain, on what you how would you define professionalism? To me, it's always about a, prof- a
2: professional is somebody who um,
3: has wait,
2: shoot, I'm blanking on it. Um, like I, I a professional, you reserve the right to criticize yourself is, is the way I think about it, right? Like you hold yourself accountable for what, for your, for your work, right? And so you know, I thought that's like for physicians, it's always been one of our things, especially for surgeons, right? We have m M&M, right? So it's that I equate professionalism with holding yourself accountable for what you did and what your outcomes are.
3: Makes sense to me. Rishi? Now, you're, now me, you're, gonna to,
2: you're gonna have to send me some stuff on this guy. I have not heard of him. So
0: yeah, Rishi, go ahead so how are you define it dr. Spain um, I think that one thing that we know about professionals as colleagues is that a, a physician is a professional is a good partner um, and I also think that it's fairly self-evident not intuitive that not everyone is born uh, as a good partner as a, or as a professional it's a skill or a talent that hopefully is cultivated by the people who mentor you um Starting with medical students, how do we incorporate this? Uh, I remember when I was in medical school, which is an increasingly you know increasingly in the remote past, um, we hit cultural competency really hard and it's kind of the same thing insofar as it's relating to other people, um, but professionalism is as much relating to your colleagues and do you think that this is something that you can teach in medical school going forward? Is it something that residents are even open to learning about, or are they just trying to keep their head above water?
2: Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Great question, right? Yeah, it's much like leadership. I don't, I don't, I think there's, I think there's a few natural born leaders, but really most people, it's a learned, it's a learned skill. Um, I think the same is probably, you know, same's true with professionalism, right? Um, I, you know, I hope. I think in a lot of residency, we hope they learn by example, they see what it looks like. Um, I don't know that we're explicit about teaching it. I think we're getting better about it. I think it's becoming increasingly clear that medicine's a team sport, right in the old days if I'm the doctor, you're the nurse, do what I say it just that you know that doesn't work anymore right but but just I mean functionally it doesn't work anymore and you know, professionally, it's not a good way of doing things. So, yeah, I, I hope we're modeling that for them. But, you know, I, we've, we've started doing that, like we've started a coaching program with our residents. Um, they all have a, a, a physician coach. And we actually, we actually hired a performance coach um, for our residency program and trying to encourage them to, to start thinking about their leaderships and, and their leadership skills, their interactions and, and stuff. So it's, um, you know, I, th- I think there, you know, we've focused on the technical skills and the knowledge stuff in residency a long time. I think that, you know, we've sort of started to pay more attention to, you know, social, so-called soft skills, um, because I think it's just become increasingly clear that that's important, just as important for outcomes as anything else.
0: When you were looking at the high-risk uh, specialties for your paper, I know that you looked at the the quartiles over time. Did you see any improvement in one specialty or another of the kind of frequency of complaints? Is there one specialty that is is learning, is getting better, and another that apparently isn't?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a small, I think it's like 10, 11 centers over time. So no, it was a scatter plot. Like there were some places, like you know, one specialty would be out of out of whack one year and better the next, and you know, so it, there weren't any clear trends. You'd hope we'd all be getting better over time, but it was it was pretty limited, like four or five years or something like that.
1: Okay, Milosh. Well, so as as the week weak link of the podcast and as the youngest faculty member. Um, you know if we take it to the next stage so you you've you've gone through training you are now joining a team as a as a junior faculty and professionalism is this lifelong pursuit where we're evolving from one stage to the next and we're learning things how do we how do we support these young staff members like myself in this next stage of developing that professionalism because there's obviously a big jump between well I've been a chief resident and I've been a fellow now I'm a faculty member. What do we do? How do we prepare those folks?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, right? Because I think we in medicine in general, right? I think we just we just assume you're gonna make the leap, right? You're gonna you're gonna make that transition. And and really yeah. I think you know the transition from like fellow to attending is a it's a big move, right? So all of a sudden you're, you're you know, you're responsible. You, you are the, the end person, right? It, and that's a huge change in, in you know, workflow and ethics and responsibility and all that stuff, right? And we just assume people are naturally going to make that jump. And I think it's probably naive on our part. Most people do, right? Most people handle it well, but not everybody's going to, and not every situation's the same. You know, in business, they would be much more deliberate about this, right? And so, you know, I say we. I hear like if if anybody comes in in a, like a significant leadership role, they immediately get a, a, an executive coach to work with them. And the question is like, why aren't we doing this at at, at the entry level? Right? The like University of Michigan is really doing something interesting. They have these launch teams. So when they hire a new junior faculty, they have a launch team. So there's somebody there that's your clinical mentor. There's somebody there that's your research mentor. There's somebody there that's your like, um, you know, growth mentor. Like they 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 have like you'll have like three or four people that are there to mentor you in specific areas, um, you know. And and I think you know professionalism and growth could could be one of them. Um, you know, I think I think the other thing what we have to think about is, is one of the first things you have to do when you as the leaders get to make sure you don't put your new faculty in a position to fail, right? Like. That's the first thing you got to do. Like, do not set them up for success, for a failure. Now, I remember several years ago, somebody at uh, another institution asked me about one of our former residents, right? And, and they were like, you know, we're, we're thinking about hiring this person. Here's the, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, well, you know, if the situation is like this, they'll be okay. What, what's the situation? Well, it's this over here. I'm like, that's not a good setup for them. Like, that's not playing to their skills. You're, you're oh, well, we think it'll be okay. You know, two years later, it, it all blew up. And, and, you know, it was really, it was really too bad because this was a predictable kind of a, kind of a setup. So I think the first goal is you really can't put in people to fail. Um, you know, and then I, I get this idea of like, trying to build as much support around them, both clinically, research-wise. I know we don't, we don't, we have you know, I think most of us put a lot of emphasis on that. I don't know that we've put as much emphasis on the, you know, transitioning professionalism, Ba- you know how do you keep everything in balance right how do you right like all of a sudden you're the attending and how do you make sure you you i mean I, despite my age right i think a lot of people in my cohort were like workaholics in the hospital i've always like said like you need to get out you need to go home <laughs> you need are things you got you got to go to your kid's t-ball match and their soccer games all that kind of stuff you know and i've always been an advocate for for you know having you know a yeah, integrated life and not just everything being work.
1: Then I should take the opportunity to apologize to Dr. DeBose and Dr. Kundi for ambushing them with this podcast request and dragging them back in the deep end.
3: I, I think it's always nice to talk to mentors and stuff. Uh, so this is, it's been a lot of fun, Melish. but let's, we've talked a little bit about uh, how to help others, our trainees and folks around us. And I think we're going to close with the really the elephant in the room, how to deal with the, maybe the more problematic physician. But first, let's let let's look at maybe some introspection. You can help us with, Dr. Spain. I, I, I'm a quote guy. And here's another one from Julius Irving that I kind of like when it comes to professionalism. And it's he once said, this is Dr. J, right? And I don't even know if Milish knows who Dr. J is, but we'll... But, I was...
1: I was a professional basketball coach for almost 10 years. So how okay. Did
3: okay. All right. Fair enough. So you're familiar with Dr. Goet and the impact he had on the sport. But he said, being a professional is doing the things you love to do on the days you don't feel like doing them. And we're not going to be as human beings, our best every day. And as humans, we're going to have moments of weakness and fault. We're going to have bad interactions, mm-hmm. Right. Give us some advice on how do we personally try to mitigate against those lapses and professionalism, and more importantly, probably deal with them appropriately when we do demonstrate our humanity. Yeah. So two things,
2: right? Like one of the things I learned uh, from one of my partners, uh, Kristen Stottemeyer, right, Uh, was recognizing when you are feeling triggered, right, and then and then stopping and thinking about it. Right, so I think that's a key thing. So if you can, if you can realize you're getting triggered. So for me, I know what my triggers are. Like I've, you know, I figure I've learned. Like if I think somebody's being lazy, or I think somebody's being dishonest, that's where I get triggered, right? And then, and then, so if you can recognize that, then the question is, wait a minute, is that person really being lazy? Is that person really being dishonest, or am I just not seeing something? Am I just misinterpreting? Right. Like very few people show up to work any one day and say I'm going to be lazy and dishonest today right like that really doesn't happen very often right but if I'm interpreting the situation like that is that is am I really being correct yeah and truthfully nine times out of ten I'm I'm probably being I'm probably wrong right and so if you can recognize your triggers and then try to ask yourself why like why am I feeling triggered and again for me it's it's dishonesty and laziness um, which are like say, exceedingly rare in our, in our work, right, but so that's one, so again, if you can slow down, that was a good, that was a good thing I learned from, from Kristen, so, you know, years ago, Um, and then, and then, you know, if it does happen, the, the, the best thing you can do is apologize as
3: fast as possible,
2: right, and and I remember I was like, Amy, like, Ten years ago, like it was like late evening. I was trying to get a case on. I don't know. You know, it's just trying to get something going before it got too late. It's like whatever, like seven o'clock. The OR, you know, it was just right. And I just like, you know, gave gave some nurse an earful, and you know. And then I, as soon as it was over, I was like, ah, that was stupid, right? And I and he was in the nurses' lounge having dinner, like. You know, and I walked in and there's a bunch of people in the nurse's lounge and I just like publicly out loud said, John, I was a jerk. Was it your fault? I took it out on you. It was stupid on my part. I apologize. And now to that day, like John is like a great friend. Like, right. And, and if, you know, and, um, you know, and if you, you know, if I ask him for a favor now, he, he bends over backwards, he'll do anything, you know, and it was, but again, I think the, you know, just say, you're sorry. Don't make excuses. Just say, you're sorry. And, and the faster you can do it, the better. I was, you know, we had something recently here, like, um, you know, one of my, one of my, one of our partners, Carla Pugh, African American woman, you know, had just this funny interaction with a nurse in the ICU, right? Um, and, and rather than like sort of getting, reacting, getting up, you, know, you know, she just sat down and said,
3: well, oh, you know, what were you,
2: you know, and, you know, and then, and, and to the nurse's credit, she's like, you know, I made these assumptions, I, I, I didn't recognize you, and, you know, and the two of them, like, again, you know, trying to re- keep the the triggers down, just like set and had this great conversation, and then and then and then they basically took it on the road. Like they went around the hospital and said, "Look, like we had this interaction. Like, you know, I made assumptions about her. She made assumptions about me. We had this off interaction, but then we were able to talk about it without you know getting emotional and working through it. And, and it it's, it was it was like a great learning experience. So, you know, again, for a lot of for most of these situations, I, I'm sorry is the best thing you can say.
1: Yeah. Well, so what about what about if you've if you've been given that label of a you're a problem physician, you know you for for whatever reason somebody has put you on that you've you've been judged people know to avoid you nurses know not to you know come to you with their concerns all the interactions are difficult um, how do you deal with someone who is not conducting themselves as a professional, you know. You have a colleague, you have uh, an attending on a on a different service. Recognizing that these interactions will vary by, you know, which position you're at, depending on where you're at in the hierarchy and what the relationship is like. Um, how do you uh, start with a, you know? With a superior who is behaving in an unprofessional manner, a p- peer or a sub- subordinate, how do you how do you tackle that kind of situation?
3: Yeah,
2: that's a great question. You yeah, know, we uh, yeah we have a, a group here that is sort of peer coaches from when people are having them. You know, unfortunately, the students nominated me a couple years ago to do this. So I've actually had to do this with some some colleagues, both in my department and in other departments, who you know and the good news is like you know the data would say about two-thirds of people will will get better with just the, the cup of coffee discussion right you, you know calm up sit down have a cup of coffee go hey look you know here's what i've been hearing or, or here's some specific examples of stuff right um you know i i know this isn't what you intended or what you meant but this is how it's being interpreted what do you think right And and just you know, as a colleague, you know, try to be non-judgmental and just try to get them to engage in a, you know, in a, in a conversation, you know, frequently in medicine, you know, it's always the ultimate defense is like, you know, why I was just trying to do the right thing for the patient. Well, okay. Like most of us are patient advocates. Few of us are patient adversaries, right? Like, like we're all trying to do the right thing. Right. But you know, the way you went about handling it just right. So, you know, how can, how can we do it better in the, in the future? It, you know, it, like I say, the, the data would show two thirds of people with like one simple conversation with a colleague, you know, you know, this is the impact it's having. Is this really what you want? They'll get better. Another 20% or so, you know, really have to go through some coaching to, to improve, right? And then you have there's another, you know, 10% that are really just recalcitrant and generally have to be moved on. Right. Like, to, you know, you got to like, sorry, like you, you know, um, and, and the problem is always, we, we tend to give those people like way too much leeway and way too much time um, as opposed to really just, you know, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, just move on. Like, but again, I think if you can identify who they are, but you know, most of the people are, you know, most people like say with a, either some simple coaching their peer or some professional coaching like most will get better but it's it's those right like, recalcitrant ones that are hard and you really those ones you just can't like the, one of the things is this guy uh, uh, Gerald Hickson at Vanderbilt's one who really runs this stuff and he he keeps one of those things yeah I, he's one of the first people I heard talk about this he said there can be no special people it doesn't matter if you're a rainmaker you know you're that surgeon that has huge volumes you do 12,000 work RVUs blah 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 right like it doesn't matter if you're not playing by the rules, it does. There can be no special person because the minute there's one special person, then everybody can be special, right? And so you, you know, you really gotta, you know, you know, decide what what where your where your threshold is. And it does it does again? It doesn't matter. If they're an apartment chair, or if they're you know huge work RVUs, or have a giant work referral pattern, like if they're really not you know professional, then you know you've got to deal with it.
3: So in that
0: vein, then, Dr. Spain um, did not mean to rhyme anything there. Uh, Tied to professionalism is the idea of accountability, where exactly like you said, everyone's going to say, I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm just trying to make sure that the room is set up properly for the case, that I have the things I want. I'm trying to advocate for my patient. And we have a culture of patient advocacy, but how do we nurture a culture of advocating for each other and for the atmosphere that goes towards caring for the patient? Um, You know, we have at at my institution, um, you know, I'm sure it's any others, uh, a very easy way to to file a complaint online. Mm -hmm. And the second that happens the relationship, in my opinion, the relationship is damaged. Yep, because it goes through official channels, and then there are third parties involved who didn't witness it, and it turns into um, an argument about what actually happened. Is there a place for a culture of mediation that's, you know, personal? It to make this a, a question of personal relationships that's tied into patient care.
2: Oh man, see, you're singing my song now i mean same thing we you know like we have we had called, they're called safe reports here right in and, and the minute you know somebody files a safe report the residents feel accused right it, it, if you talk to them right it doesn't matter what how it's said it doesn't matter how you couch it they feel accused and, and it's this i'm guilty until proven innocent mentality right it, it, it it's it's really problematic and so i've like tried to work again obviously you know something's unsafe and Like, just if there's clearly a line, like somebody crosses the line, like, yes, like, fine, you know, you know, obviously, you know, any misogynistic behavior, sexual harassment, right, clearly, like, fine, right? But Like, you know, as you said earlier, all of us have bad days where we're not at our best, you say something you shouldn't say. Like, again, I have tried to push really hard with our nurses to like, like, give me a call, like, just tell me, like, I will absolutely deal with it. If it happens a second or a third time, fine. You know, file your paper. And, you know, um, but that idea of like, you know, just give us a call, let us deal with it. Because again, the minute you, right, file a complaint or put it on paper, it's, it's just it's just hard to walk that back, right? And, and they feel accused, right? And we've, we've seen it, like, I will say, like, years ago, we had a, one of our, in one of our units that the, the, you know, the head nurse just called me up, and said, like, David, one of your residents did this. I like, okay, fine, thanks, I'll deal with it, right? And then you know, she retired. We got a new charge nurse, and there was a lot. All of a sudden, like it was like, oh, well, you know, write you know write that up. And then you know, and then the working relationship just like went you know just tanked, right? And when we and it took us you know a couple of years to recuperate, right? And it really got back to this thing like, just call us, right? You know, because it is it is kind of you know the residents are never going to file complaints. They just they can't be bothered. But so it is we. we've we've had a lot of discussion about that here and we've been trying to like you know throw throw the whole thing out and re- redesign it so that like say that that idea of like let's work together you know this it got to be a teamwork how do we advocate for each other without you know um, you know without sort of you know just complaining without without consequences right because there's there's no verification it's anonymous it's it's just it's, it's, I don't know. So I, I've really pushed really hard on our on our all our surgical units to just, and we we've done that. We've sort of set up systems now where all our surgical units have a unit based medical director. So there's somebody that the, the, the resource nurse can call and say, hey, like you know, can you can you deal with this? And, and it's you know I think the informal process is a lot better if you can make that work. So yeah, the, the, the doctor,
1: sorry.
0: So the positive side of accountability is something else I wanted to ask you about, you know, in academic medicine, you can get promoted for your clinical performance. You can get promoted for your academic performance, but there's not really a formal system to recognize someone who's well-liked, who's regarded as a good colleague and a natural, you know, um, a naturally encouraging colleague, uh, do you think that there is a role for some kind of formal recognition that this person's a really good colleague and is very professional, aside from the kind of thing that gives you a lapel pin every six months?
2: Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Well, we've certainly seen the opposite. We've certainly had people who've had their promotions held up based on, on you know, evals from residents, students, in terms of their, you know, behavior and and, and professionalism. That's That's definitely occurred um you know i i think you know recognition does help right um you know we we actually just you know we have like very few awards i think there's lots of places to give out tons of awards like you know attending of the month resident of the week like we we don't we don't do any any of that um but i did i we were recently like again i was looking at at our our teaching evals and we give about like one teaching award a year Almost always goes to a senior faculty, right? You've been around a long time. You got a competitive advantage, right? And I was looking like there were several junior faculty that were nominated that were just had incredible evals. They're just never going to catch that senior person that's been around for twenty years. So we, you know, we've created a a junior and a senior, you know, t- annual teaching award in our department starting this year. Um, you know, just on that, you know, that idea like people people should be recognized for going above and beyond we haven't done the professionalism colleague thing but that's a that's a great idea right sort of you know yeah and then but then the question is like how do you you know how does your get your department or your promotions committee to value stuff like that I don't know I was having having this discussion with one of the students the other day about like you know there are increasing ways to contribute value to departments of surgery now right in the past it was just clinical care and research you know now people are starting to value education. People are getting more and more involved in advocacy and right in access to care and DEI. And but how how are departments and promotion committees going to value that? Because um, clearly it's worthwhile and it's value added, but it's not the traditional, you know, sort of academic merit that that we've all had in the past. But but it's something that's going to have to be accounted for going forward.
3: Yeah. Well, hopefully we will reach that point increasingly as we, uh, as we roll forward. So we close every podcast, Dr. Spain, with some random questions. And this right. is where we get to know our surgical leaders and a little bit behind them. Now, um, you're kind of a tough man on the West Coast to get to know, but I happen to have some spies in your division. So, and, and you're easy to follow on Twitter. And you, you're, you're obviously, you, you're, you're well, um, you, know, you're, you get around our trauma meetings well and are, are well thought of. So I, I think everybody knows you, your love for music. And you always seem to find a way in your Twitter feed to incorporate well-plucked lyrics from your favorites to highlight something or some perspective that you're thinking about. So give me, I'll put you on the spot. Give me a lyric that comes to mind from the topic of professionalism.
2: Uh, Stevie Wonder. All right. Kindness knows no shame. Ah, well played, sir. Well played. Okay. If
3: you can be kind. Yeah.
2: It'll handle most situations.
3: Yeah. Yep. There's when you're in, when you do things in the, in, the, in the sake of kindness, there's very little to be shamed of. Right. Right. Um, Your love of music, is it universal to your family? I, I know you do your and, and do your wives and boys always agree on the playlist. Now, I say this because some, one of my spies pointed mm-hmm. out a Twitter posting where your boys and your wife had tickets to the week to see the weekend, like one of the hottest bands in the country right now. Correct. At Levi Stadium. And yep. you you got a hall pass to go to, to go see Elvis Costello at a smaller venue. Yep. And 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 that's a beautiful thing. But how does that leak into uh, like the home music choice around Thanksgiving dinner? I mean, are there is there conflict here?
2: Yeah, a little bit. I, my my taste of music pretty broad. My my wife, I I think she just forgets how old she is, right? So, I mean, her like she loves the weekend actually I, we actually did go see him together like four or five years ago um yeah. so when she wanted to go back uh and she actually went to see him a couple years ago with a friend of hers and then when she wanted to go back a third time i'm like no you can go with with our son you know um uh you know and so uh so she likes him and post malone like those are like your two favorite artists really i'm like, She's hip. You know, I'm like your wife you know, is him i'm like do you know how old you are like you you do understand your wife that. is a posty yeah, so
1: Dude, Post Malone.
2: Yeah, there you go. Right. So, um, you know, but I, I mean, I like them, right? But my taste is pretty, uh, is pretty, pretty eclectic. Like, so I, yeah, I have my my playlist is, is pretty wild. Um, you know, um, but we both like, but both of us like, um, you know, Motown. You know, we we, yeah. like my wife and I've seen Smokey Robinson like four or five times. You know. Um, yeah. You know, so there's and,
3: some common ground. There's some common ground there. Yeah.
2: My kids are, you know, they're in their 20s, whatever. I, I don't know. They're like, you know, they listen to whatever. Like, you know, it's like mostly dance music. So my kids are kind of like they do their own thing. Um, yeah. So, so we have, yeah. So they, they decide to go the weekend, and then I, um, and then I was like, you know, I'm gonna sit at home, and I, I have this thing like there was a, we, we were playing this game last night. Uh, there's, it's, it's a, based on what some radio station used to do is. It The premise is you have to pick three songs. If you were stuck in a desert island, you have to pick three songs you would listen to. If you're going to listen to three songs for the rest of your life, what three songs would you pick? Yeah. Yeah. So my three songs are What's Going On by Marvin Gaye. Okay. Allison by Elvis Costello. Okay. And uh, Jane Says by Jane's Addiction. Like those would be my three songs.
3: Pretty diverse. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Sometimes I might switch out the third one and, um, can't Find My Way Home by Blind Faith. That's a great song. But but anyways, I've never seen Elvis Costello. So they're going away. I'm like, he's playing at this little venue. I'm like, great. So I just got taken one by myself.
3: Well, Elvis, Elvis is up there now. So, I mean, how, how was his voice? Was it good? I mean, it was pretty good, yeah. You know, it was a small venue, right?
2: And so, you know, he was doing pretty good. So, you know, and then his, his final song was Allison. I was like, all right, great.
3: I can, yeah. I'll get this check, huh? Yep. So, well, well, let me. I'll I'll spin the three songs uh, kind of on its head a little bit. What if you had, uh, you could have a, a private concert, mm-hmm. and you could bring any three musicians from history, alive or past. Yeah. And who would they be? And for bonus points, what name would the studio album have that they create? Ooh! Wow! 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 All right, all right. the three artists would be Marvin Gaye. Okay. Elvis Costello. Okay.
2: And Stevie Wonder.
3: So, how do you take those three very re- relatively diverse artists and create a, you know, like all these great bands that come together from other Outcast bands that come to Cream or whatever, and yeah. they all come together? What would be the name of this band? Wow. Wow. What would it be?
2: I don't know. Wow. Wait. Marvin Gaye,
3: Elvis Costello, and Stevie Wonder. How, this is almost r and B. I i mean he's kind of practically
1: right he's oh yeah there. yeah 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 i
2: mean he's but you know i think the the, the the thing about all three of them is i think they're like their music's intelligent yes right? i don't know it would have it's to some, some play on right like it's thoughtful intelligent. so i don't know it's some somewhere you know it'd have to be some some take on that right like intelligent you know music that makes you think somehow
3: okay all right well we'll come back to that one so yeah well, Dr. Spin, I know you're very busy and uh, listen, thank you so much for joining us um, uh, for this. I think that article that you really raised a lot of eyebrows, it certainly woke me up a little bit uh, about you know, the change in culture and the importance of uh, professionalism. Um, and I'm gonna let Milos uh, send us out. Then Milos, do you have any other closing comments you have?
1: Uh, if I had to take a stab at the band name, like, like, you know, based on our conversation and, and something, witty and pithy i'd probably go with professionalism improves outcomes featuring stevie wonder marvin Gaye, and elvis costello um you know this this has been you know the the idea of the podcast was to give people a glimpse on what it would be like to sit in on a conversation with the giants of trauma and just listen to them talk about any old thing and and obviously today's conversation is hugely important for For all of us as we try and figure out how to be the best trauma surgeons we can be so thank you so much obviously to dr spain for his insights and his teaching and to to our great mentors dr Debose and and dr kundi um this has been tiger country and we look forward to seeing everybody on the next podcast thank you so much goodbye
2: Bye -bye. Bye bye guys you've been
0: listening to tiger country On behalf of Milos Behovitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.